I'm like, gosh, if I could spare them the two antibiotics and the flagell, that would be a great big help for them. So I added Ching Hao to all the other things I was doing herbally with them. And you know what? My patients never got pneumocystis carinae pneumonia. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. We venerate our history, the classics and the masters. With East Asian medicine, we have this way of looking backward in a way that helps us to look more deeply into the present. Tradition and appreciation of the past, it slices two ways. It can lock us into the rigidity of thinking those ancient ones were smarter than us, that we've lost the way, and so we have to follow the letter of tradition and not deviate from their thinking and actions. You know, even the oldest of our books on medicine, the Neijing, it says something to the effect of, people in the past, they lived better than we did. It's not hard to fall for nostalgia in the promised land of a golden past. But I suspect that our medicine works not because we're following prescriptions and procedures from the past, but because we learn to see what those ancient doctors saw. Because we don't take the five phases in the six levels as a poetic metaphor, but somehow learn to perceive the world through those resonances. It's not that we take the medicine of dead doctors and apply it to living people, but more that we somehow catch the spark of what those doctors had and let it kindle something in us in this moment and in this culture and this context. We've got lots of books on medicine, but I don't think you'll find much medicine in the books. You'll find it more in your clinic, in the encounters with people, in puzzling over your own health, in noticing how nature is not out there, and through a process that starts with theory, and over time, it works its way into a sense of attending and developing a comfort for a sense of knowing that touches more than the thinking mind. I suspect that medicine is relearned in each generation. It comes alive as it's passed along. It's not so much that we advance other people's thought, but that we take what they saw and we learn to see it with our own eyes and through our own experience, through our own times in history. And that something that sparked in them has also lit up something in us. Part of what I'm trying to bring you with Geological is some tinder for that spark and a reliable place for stoking that fire. You can help by becoming a geologician. It's just five bucks a month. Check out the website for details and to help keep the fires burning here. Hey, speaking of inspiration from the past and forming the present, I want to remind you that the Shenlong Society Conference is coming up on March 9th in NYC. There's a stellar lineup of practitioners, and if you can't make it to the Big Apple, then you can pull up the presentations in your living room via live stream. Oh, man. Talk about ancient and modern mixing together here. Go to ShenlongSociety.org for the details. And remember, Geological is also going to be there bringing you backstory interviews and conversations with attendees of the event. Better mark your calendar for March the 9th. In a moment, I've got a conversation with Susan Paul coming up for you. Susan is a long, long time practitioner. She learned her Chinese medicine back in the midst of the AIDS epidemic. Really interesting stuff in this conversation. But first, I mentioned in the last podcast that I'm looking for a few people to join me for a panel discussion on the privilege of doing business. 
I've had a couple of folks raise their hand on this, and I'm looking for one more practitioner who's not a business consultant, but simply a practitioner who does not see the practice of business as being separate from the practice of medicine. Send me an email if you'd like to join us for this conversation. I've got Sharon Weisenbaum coming up here in a moment with an herbal combination that I think you'll find useful in your clinic and better yet, where she got it from. And thanks as ever to Golden Needle Online. Golden Needle has been part of Geological since the very beginning, and they're dedicated to bringing you quality products at fair prices. They also support our profession by bringing you clinically relevant and educational resources, well, like Geological. Additionally, They've got their website set up so it's easy to navigate and find the herbs and formulas that you need using the formula finder. So you can search using Chinese medicine search parameters. Plus, if you've got questions, they've got experienced herbalists on staff to help. Golden Needle not only has Chinese medicine supplies, but they also carry a variety of other supplements, Western herbs, flower essences, and medicinal mushrooms that can be useful in your East Asian medicine or integrative practice. And of course... They've got all the flavors and varieties of pins that you might want. Golden Needle, supplies for your clinic, nourishment for your mind. Hi there, this is Sharon Weisenbaum. I'm the director of White Pine Healing Arts Clinic and White Pine Institute. I'd like to share today a pair of herbs that I use often in the clinic when I'm treating coughs. The pair of herbs is Bai Shao and Gansao, Shaoyao Gansao Tong, and this pair is really fantastic to add to formulas when the cough has a spastic paroxysmal kind of hacking irritated won't stop quality to it i'd like to share later in the show where i got this trick and how you might find out more susan welcome to geological thank you i'm so happy to be here i'm happy to have you here so You've been practicing Chinese medicine for a long, 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 long time. I'm curious to know, what got you started with this? When did you start? And what got you started? I started out uh, in Western medicine. And uh, in my childhood, I had a lot of respiratory illnesses. My uncle was a pediatrician, and he was more or less the hero of our family because he would come and sort of take care of me and give me usually a penicillin shot. But I did have pneumonia four times in childhood, and I've had it five more times since then in adulthood. So my lungs are not my strong suit. But he was a very inspirational person in my childhood. And because he was a doctor, for peculiar reasons, I decided I wanted to be a nurse. But I really wanted to be a nurse because the nursing school at Cornell University was in Manhattan. And I was born, raised, and grew up and lived for 50 years in New York City. Uh, But I was raised in Queens, and Manhattan was the promised land in my family. So the fact that I could live in Manhattan and go to Cornell University and get a degree in nursing from Cornell... Oh, man, that was the best, huh? Yeah, yeah, it was an, an an enticing package, you know, and it was a five-year program where I could go to any liberal arts school for two years and then three years of nursing, and the medical school of Cornell and the nursing school shared some facilities at New York Hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So I went to Queens College. I, I was living in Queens with my family at that time. I went to Queens College for two years. That was part of the city of 
the College of the City of New York. And then I moved into Manhattan when I was 19. And I was a very happy camper because that I had somehow managed to get to live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Even that wasn't where I wanted to live, but I was living in a nurse's residence right next door to New York Hospital. So I did three years there. But during those three years, I, I increasingly felt more and more uncomfortable with nursing and the role of the nurse vis-a-vis the role of the doctor, vis-a-vis the role of the patient. And I, several times I wanted to leave nursing school, but my parents were sort of insisting that I get my degree. And I was, you know, sort of a good girl at that time. And so I did. And I graduated in 1966. I got married shortly after. I I became pregnant two years after that. I had a three-year-old child when I realized that the marriage was wrong and nursing was wrong. But suddenly, I overnight, you know, after my husband and I separated, I was a single mother with a three-year-old. And I had to earn money, which I had been earning because he was in graduate school and I was really supporting us. But I had to support myself and my child, and he was not really able to contribute very much. And the only way I could really earn money was as a nurse because that's what my education prepared me to do. So that was the irony of it. And I worked in different medical settings in Manhattan for 20 years before I heard about acupuncture. And I actually heard about it at my daughter's 16th birthday party because the father of one of her friends had graduated from Tri-State Institute of Traditional Chinese Acupuncture. And he was an acupuncturist. And actually, that's not quite true because before that, about two years before that, my partner, who was an MD, who I was, we were living together, was invited by Mike Smith, who was the the founder of the NADA detox protocol for drug and alcohol abuse. So Mike Mike Smith was the founder of the acupuncture clinic at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx, which at that time was an extremely underserved, underprivileged, dangerous neighborhood of enormous drug and alcohol and crime occurrences with a lot of multi multiply addicted homeless people. But Mike had opened up this clinic in Lincoln Hospital and he was smart enough to get it Medicare Medicaid reimbursed. And he was treating these homeless people who had multiple addictions with ear points basically and maybe a few body points in one big room with forty two recliner chairs in the South Bronx. So he invited the man that I was living with who was running the detox and alcohol program at Downstate, which was another city hospital, which was in Brooklyn. Uh, He invited him to come up to see the clinic at Lincoln because Mike was always proselytizing to spread the use of acupuncture in the treatment of addiction. And what year was this again? This is 1982. 1982, early days. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Early days, yeah. And so this man that I was with said, said, gee, you know, this guy, Mike Smith, invited me to come up to the Bronx on Saturday morning do you, to show me an acupuncture clinic. Do you want to come? And I think I even said, what's acupuncture? <laughs> he said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. But there, we went, you know. And at that time, I had a very strange pain. 
I, I actually had gotten so sick of nursing and I really didn't want to be part of the Western allopathic system that I was cooking professionally in a restaurant in Manhattan. And I was on my feet a great number of hours a day and I used to get a pain. I can tell you now it was at bladder 54 in my behind my the knee of my left leg. And it used to wake me up every morning. And there was nothing any I you know because of all these years in nursing I did all these western allopathic things and I I wrapped it and I sure you probably I iced it, it and I cooled and, it yeah, I yeah, did yeah. everything you know yeah. and nothing moved it nothing changed it it was my alarm clock it was my built-in wake-up modality so we went up to see this clinic in the Bronx and it was a kind of a bizarre thing because there there's this very large room with 42 recliners. And in each chair, there was a drug addict, uh, usually homeless, very often not too clean and not smelling too good and sometimes not too conscious. And um, it was really like being on another planet. And Mike came over and he, he said, this is what it is. And you see, we use these needles in the ears. And it was, you know, like acupuncture 101. It was the very basic. Mm-hmm. And And what was your initial response to that when you saw that? All these addicts, they're, they're laying there, they got needles, and you thought, what did you think? Well, a lot of it seemed kind of familiar to me because I had worked as a nurse in a, a drug and alcohol rehab program, which really, there was no rehab going on whatsoever, but everyone there had been remanded by the court. They could either go there or they could go to Rikers Island, which is a pretty brutal place and then into the general prison population, which is which you don't ever really want to do. Or they could go to this rehab place in the West Village on Hudson Street, which was a much gentler place. So I was the nurse at the dispensary in this prison, basically. And I so I had worked for about two years with with this prison population. And it didn't feel that different from what I was seeing. But of course, the needles were totally uh, from another universe. And so all these addicts are sitting there with needles sticking out of their ears and usually LI4, maybe stomach 36. And they were zoning out and half asleep and, you know, drowsing and their heads were lolling. And, you know, I couldn't tell if they were high or they were stoned or they were asleep, really. Mm -hmm. But I said to Mike, while we were just walking around, I said to him, so what does this do? And he said, well, you know, it does many, many things. And he started reeling off this list. And one of the things he said was it it relieves pain. So I said, oh, gosh, you know, I've had this pain behind my left leg for months. It wakes me up every morning and then it's gone when I get it by the time I get out of bed. He said, oh, well, when you see an empty chair, as soon as someone gets out of one of these chairs, get into it and I'll come and put some needles in you. So I did. And he he came over. Now, he didn't take my pulses. He didn't check my tongue. He didn't ask me any questions. He put about five needles in me, and I immediately fell asleep. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I woke up, and he took the needles out, and we finished this little tour of this clinic, and we left. And my partner and I were going up to my sister's for dinner that day, So we're sitting at the dinner table that evening and suddenly my left leg behind, you know, bladder 54 was throbbing. I thought my leg was going to fall off. Aha, you had one of those kind of reactions. 
Yes. yes. I had a major about six hours after the treatment. And I said to my partner, I said, God, I think I'm getting an infection. I bet those needles weren't sterile. My leg is killing me. So he went and he telephoned Mike at home and told him what was going on. And Mike said, oh, that's very good. Tell her to come on Monday. I want to see her. So on Monday, well, first of all, this was a Saturday. And Sunday morning, I slept till about 8 in the morning because this thing didn't start hurting me at 6 in the morning. Yep. Exactly. So I was absolutely astounded that this could have disappeared so quickly after just one treatment. I mean, that's basically impossible, right? No. Well, I mean, from from the point of view that you had been looking at it. Of course. Of course it was impossible. Like, how could this possibly have worked so quickly? So on Monday, Monday was my day off from the restaurant anyway. It was perfect. I went up to the South Bronx by myself, and I had a treatment. So while I was sitting there with the needles, I noticed that all these other, not all, but there were about five other people going around putting needles in all the patients. And Mike was sort of supervising. And at one point, when he came over to take out my needles, I said to him, well, so who are these people going around? Are these doctors? And he said, no, no, no. These are people I've trained how to do it. To tell you the truth, they're largely, you know, they have histories of addiction and they're they're doing this work and they get free treatment. I said, they're not doctors and they're putting needles in people. You know, this to me, this is a whole other world. Oh, yeah. So what happened at one point was I said to him at, at, an, at a subsequent treatment, I think I had about three treatments from him altogether. At the last treatment, I said to him, you know, this is so interesting. How could I learn this? <laughs> he said, well, <laughs> this is exactly how it happened. Yeah. He said, actually, I'm starting a program for nurses and doctors at Montefiore Hospital, which was sort of the the more uh, middle-class partner of, of Lincoln Hospital in a somewhat less dangerous neighborhood in the Bronx, not that far away, but it was also part of the city hospital system in New York. He said, it's going to be free for the doctors and nurses, and you're a nurse, you could come. I said, oh, oh great, man. you know, when wow. is it going to be? <laughs> Basically, this is how it happened. So I did nine months of going up to Lincoln Hospital and doing this study program with Michael, Mike Smith, who, by the way, just recently passed away a few months ago, and um, these other doctors and nurses who were doing, you know, general hospital nursing at Montefiore. But again, it was with this same population of multiply addicted homeless people who, you know, you couldn't prescribe anything for them to do regularly. You couldn't give them herbs because they had no way to keep them anywhere. They they didn't have a home. They didn't have a way to make anything right. or maintain themselves in any predictable, regulated schedule. They just knew that they had to show up. So all you had was acupuncture, working with people living in fairly extreme conditions. Very extreme. And usually yeah. half strung out on drugs. Uh-huh. Or alcohol, or both. Or both. And maybe something else tossed in. Yeah. Whatever, you know, whatever drifted by, they would take. They were not necessarily very discriminating. They were really living on the edge. They were poorly nourished. They had tuberculosis. They had many things in addition to drug addiction. 
And this was 1982, and it was the very, very, very beginning of the AIDS epidemic in New York City. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we were sterilizing. These were not disposable needles. Disposable needles were not that, you know, they weren't really out yet. No, they didn't show up till a few years later, as I recall. That's right. So they were sterilizing the, these ear needles in glass bead sterilizers. And I asked Mike several times, are you sure this isn't that this really sterilizes them? Why don't you put them in an autoclave? And he said, oh, you don't want to handle them that much in an autoclave. It's, you know, you don't have to, Susan. You just stick them in the glass bead sterilizer. They just have to stay in for 20 minutes. I always felt a little nervous about it, but he was running the clinic, and that's the way it was done. So in those days, that's that was the level of sterilization. Mm-hmm. And, of course, HIV virus is very fragile, and it hardly lives outside the body at all. And you can eradicate it with one part bleach and nine parts of water in a spray bottle. So it's, it wasn't AIDS that was really da- no, the danger. No, it was probably it was the really hepatitis. hepatitis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Because the hepatitis virus is so much more hardy, is so hardy. And because all these people were mostly were using intravenous drugs as well as smoking pot and sniffing whatever they could get. So many of them were HEP positive and they didn't even know it, you know, but sometimes they'd walk in totally jaundiced with big livers and nauseous and they were having an acute hepatitis and nobody had picked it up because they were really living on the fringe. So Mike really, really, really contributed an enormous service to this community and he trained hundreds of detox technicians, and he created the NADA protocol. NADA was born at Lincoln Hospital, but it was born after I was there. I was never NADA certified because NADA didn't exist when I was there. It was born probably about 10 years later. Wow. So this is this is the early days. He's just doing this thing, and you happened to wander by. Well, I wandered by because my boyfriend was invited yeah. to visit the clinic. Yeah, yeah. We, get, we get so... F- we get so lucky sometimes that opportunities get tossed our way, you know? Absolutely. This was a life-changing exposure of a totally different paradigm to me. What happened after that? So you okay. you took Can this... I just say one thing, Michael? Can I just say, when, when I was seven years old, we lived very near my aunt and uncle, and this is the uncle who was the, my pediatrician. My favorite thing to do when we visited my aunt and uncles, which was probably about once or twice a week, was to read his journals of the American Medical Association. (laughs) He had a big bookcase in the living room. You're such a geeky kid. I was. But he was, it was filled with JAMA, you know, J-A-M-A, with years and years of the Journal of the American Medical Association. To me, it was the most interesting thing in the world. I used to look at x-rays. I used to read lab reports. I read articles and articles and articles. I'm sure I had a medical, you know, experience in one of my recent past lives. I could guarantee that, you know, because I came in as a child drawn to this stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. I went after it like a beehive. So, but then this was after, you know, almost 20 years of nursing. I'm I'm discovering Chinese medicine. Um, Well, it was 1982 and I graduated from... Cornell in 66. It was 18 years later. 
And I was so ready to turn my back on allopathy. Well, it sounds like you already had. You're working as a cook. You're, you know, you're kind of done with it. And then this shows up. Right, exactly. So the thing that happened was I did, I did the nine months training. And Mike didn't just teach the NADA protocol, what became the NADA protocol, because you can learn that in about an hour. He basically taught us everything about, you know, the eight principles, yin and yang and excess and deficient and cold and hot and, you know, the, the like Chinese medicine 101. He, and he was a very good teacher. The thing was, his the population he worked with were all these addicts. And I was tired of addicts. I was tired of homeless people. I was tired of drug, you know, of, of prisons and that segment of the population. I had done it before as a nurse, and I didn't see myself doing that in the future as an acupuncturist. I didn't really want to. So one day I said to Mike, you know, Mike, I really want to learn how to be a, a real acupuncturist, not to just do detox treatments. Where can I go? And he said, oh, well, you know, there are schools. I said, well, how do I find them? I was so ignorant. I had no idea that there were schools where you le learned acupuncture outside of China, honestly. Well, there weren't many schools in that day either. Well, at that time, there were two in New in Manhattan. Well, not Manhattan. There were two in the New York area. There was... One that's run by Uriawan, well, her name when I knew her in high school was Uriawana Trinidad. That's a great name. Yeah. Well, yes. And I we went to high school together, but when in high school she had a different first name. Then she became a very um, political, active, like Black Panther kind of person. And she started this school in the Bronx for, it was largely for Black and Puerto Rican students and she didn't want me, and she also didn't want me because I was a nurse and had a degree from Cornell, and she felt I wouldn't be able to learn Chinese medicine because I was already imprinted with allopathy. So that was kind of a shock that someone would have that attitude. But then I went to see Mark Seam, who was the director at Tri-State, which at that time was in Connecticut, and he thought it was great that I was a nurse with 20 years medical experience, and he accepted me immediately. And so for um, 84, 85, and 86, I went to Tri-State. And a group of us lived in, in Manhattan, and we used to drive up in my friend's VW van that had a mattress in the back. And so I, we would always, a bunch of us would always be sleeping on the mattress coming home from school at night. It was, um, it wasn't every day. It was like three or four, maybe it was three days a week and long weekends. But we did the, you know, the requisite number of hours. And Mark Seam was an interesting guy. And we had a lot of special teachers. Eve Rekina came and Kiko Matsumoto and, you know, Ted Kaptrick was floating around and many other people like that. So we had interesting guest teachers and Mark had studied with this French guy whose name I'm blocking right now, but also he did a, a, lo a lot of time because he was fluent in French. He calls himself Dr. Seam, but actually his his doctorhood is in French, not in medicine. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yes, but um, he did a lot of work with a, a very famous Vietnamese acupuncturist whose name is escaping me right now also. 
And I had wonderful friendships with my colleagues in class, and it was a wonderful three years. So I graduated in 86, 20 years after I graduated from Cornell. In that time, New York State still did not have licensure, but we had been mentored to get a license in Massachusetts, which did have licensure. So I had this Massachusetts license, and I was more or less quite involved in the effort to get acupuncture licensure in New York State, which eventually we did get. And while I was in acupuncture school, I did 12-hour home care nursing with dying AIDS patients. Uh-huh. Because by 84, 85, 86, you see the AIDS epidemic started in, in Manhattan in 82. Now, in, in 1982, I was also working part-time for a friend of mine who was a, an internist whose office was in Greenwich Village, and her nurse had gone out on maternity leave, and she begged me to fill in for her nurse. And I had said to her, oh, you know, Joyce, I really don't want to be an office nurse. She said, oh, come on, you can look for something, and I'll look for someone. Meanwhile, you'll have an income, and I'll have a nurse, and come on, we'll have fun. So I did it. All of a sudden, every day, these young men would be coming into her office with weight loss and diarrhea and peculiar skin lesions and coughing and fevers and night sweats. And at the end of the day, when the last one left, she and I would sit there and we'd look at each other. This happened about five different times. And one of us would say, what is going on? And then the other one would say, I don't know. Something is, there's some kind of epidemic. So she called the CDC and She said, you know, I called Atlanta and they told me that there's something happening on the West Coast in California, in San Francisco and in New York, that they have reports. They're all similar to what we're seeing, but it seems to only be in New York and San Francisco. Well, of course, it didn't last like that very long, but at the beginning, that's where cases were being reported. And of course, this was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic in America. And it was a a horrific and fascinating thing at the same time. Hi, this is Sharon back again. I got the idea for using Xiaoyao Gansautong in formulas for spastic cough from a teacher named Dr. Yu Guozhen. I read about this use in his book called A Walk Along the River. Dr. Yu also uses this combination of herbs, Baishao and Gansao, in formulas for constipation, for pain from urinary tract or kidney stones, even for herpatic lesions, or from the spastic feeling of not being able to stop scratching an itch. All of these disharmonies have in common that there is spasming going on, and when that spasming is going on, you can add Xiaoyagansautong to your formula and it will really augment the effect of that formula. The exciting news is that Dr. Yuko Jun is coming to Amherst, Massachusetts to teach for three days. Please check this out. It will be live and it will also be streamed live, so I really hope you can make it. And you're in the middle of Chinese medicine school while this is going on. Exactly. Wow. I bet that gave you some material to work with, didn't it? It gave me enormous material because 
not only was I in her office, but I was to support myself and my daughter and our share of the expenses of where I was living. I was doing 12-hour home care cases as an RN in the homes of terminally ill, usually very young men who were, you know, unfortunate to get it at the very beginning when nobody knew what it was. Allopathy had no idea of how to treat it. No one knew what where it came from. This was like being on the at the at the brink of the black plague in mm-hmm. in you know in the middle ages in Europe. It was a total mystery, but it was a mystery that was constantly increasing in its scope because more and more parts of the world were being affected. But in, in those years, those earlier years, it was generally gay men who were showing up with symptoms. The the whole homosexual transmission issue greatly preceded it showing up in intravenous drug users, which also greatly preceded it showing up in women and children. At, in those years, almost anyone who had AIDS was a gay man, though I actually, when I was practicing acupuncture, I actually had a, an older woman who had had a facelift in Manhattan in a very fine hospital. She had required a blood transfusion, and she had go. gotten That's AIDS from, from the blood transfusion. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So this was before the blood supply was considered to be safe. So in those days, most of the patients were gay men. A lot of them worked in theater. They were advertising directors. They were very creative people. They had A lot of them had really good jobs with excellent health care, and um, they had insurance that allowed them to have RNs in the home 24-7. So usually it was a 12-hour shift. You either did a day shift or a night shift. Because I was going to acupuncture school, I did a night shift, which was 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., and because it was this big mystery that was sweeping the the country, there was a lot of fear in the medical industry about how do you catch it? Is it communicable through droplet infection? If some, if you touch someone, can you get it through your skin? Blah, blah, blah. Right, because nobody knew. Nobody knew. Nobody exactly. knew. I remember being in Beijing when SARS came around. That's right. And, I mean, SARS is obviously a very different thing than AIDS, but it was that same sort of... There's something here, it's killing vital people, and we're not sure how you get it. Exactly. Yep. I'm not exactly sure why I wasn't afraid, but I really wasn't. I had, you know, there were a lot of articles that people were writing, you know, about using this bleach thing, always have a bottle of bleach when you go into someone's home and you spray where you're going to sit or touch or blah, blah. Don't use their fork and knife, don't, you know, don't eat off their plate, but you can hug them, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there was some, you know, there were little vague pieces of guidance, but there was nothing that was very reassuring to the public. And so people were fearful. Nurses were fearful. So the nursing care agencies, the home care agencies, had a lot of trouble getting nurses to go into the home where somebody was dying of AIDS. And so I told these agencies I would do it, but they, but I had to sleep at night because I would go to school during the day but that I would come in at eight o'clock, do everything that the patient needed, get the patient, you know, the patients were not leaving their beds. They were generally bedridden by the time I was 
doing you know, home care, then they would sleep. I said, I have to sleep. I will bring my own sheet, my own blanket on the sofa. I, I will give the patient a bell. I wake up very quickly and I'm very wide awake when I wake up if they need me. And I'll do all the care in the morning before I leave at 8 a.m. when the day person comes on. And because they were so desperate to get nurses. They took you. They said, fine. So you had this job that got you through acupuncture school. Exactly. And you got to see... Not only did it get me through, but it gave me a whole education. Gave you an education as well, yep. On the allopathic treatment of AIDS. Because I wasn't doing Chinese medicine. I wasn't giving these patients acupuncture treatments. I was following the doctor's orders and following the allopathic treatment for terminal AIDS. That was, my, that was what I could legally do, and that was what I was being paid to do. So what I'm curious about is how did that affect you and your study of Chinese medicine? I was just going to say that the entire time that I would be with these patients, I was always more or less in my head taking in the symptoms as they would be described in Chinese medicine. So I would see that there was a lot of heat, there was a lot of dryness, there's a lot of yin deficiency, there was a lot of yang deficiency because these people were really quite terminal. The skin manifestations were very fascinating to me. They had Kaposi's sarcomas, and I actually thought of a research project that I very much wanted to do to map the location of the of the Kaposi sarcomas and see on what meridians they were coming out, because to me that would indicate that there was blood stagnation in those organs, in those internal organs. It's an interesting thing to think about because a lot of the Kaposi sarcoma lesions, when they first came out, they were coming out on triple heater. Mm -hmm. So there were there were correlations that you were seeing. I mean, beyond research and, and all that. Yeah, there were many correlations. What were your findings with that? What was it that you were seeing with your own experience? You know, here these, these guys were in bed. They were on TPN, which is transpercutaneous nutrition. Their, their digestive systems were not able to process food properly, so they were getting this thick, opaque liquid into the superior vena cava, you know, right into their bloodstream to bypass the stomach and the GI tract. I mean, many things, you, I, you know, they all had respiratory signs and symptoms. In those days, pneumocystis carinae pneumonia was the number one killer of AIDS patients in America. And, you know, today, tuberculosis is the number one killer of AIDS patients in Africa and Asia. And the fact that it's a respiratory infection is, is not a coincidence because that's where the environment and the inside of the body interface in the lungs. We don't breathe with our kidneys. We breathe with our lungs. There, I, I, there were so many things. It, it was endless. I graduated from Tri-State with a very, very, very rich education in treating AIDS. And the minute I graduated, I started treating AIDS patients. And that was the most frequent diagnosis that I treated, though I had a general practice. But I treated more AIDS than anything else. At one time, I had over 600 patients. Because also, as the disease progressed and became more and more common, 
acupuncturists were afraid to treat AIDS patients because by then it was known that it could be spread through contaminated needles. If you had an accidental needle stick, you needed to get an AIDS test, you needed follow-up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I didn't disagree with that, but I was very, very careful. And I, I, whenever I handled acupuncture needles from an, from an AIDS patient, I kept my focus and concentration on exactly how I was holding the needle and where I was putting it. And I never had a stick. I never had any kind of accident. And I treated AIDS for 13 years in Manhattan. My, I treated them in my apartment because I couldn't afford my rent and professional office space in addition. And my office was a block and a half away from the gay men's health crisis, which was a huge gay organization to support and provide services for patients with AIDS. So you were busy. I was very, very busy. And I was extremely busy, and I loved every minute of it. And those were the most gratifying years of my practice because we were, I was dealing with life and death all the time with these guys. But they were so cooperative. It was such a joy to treat them because they were involved. They were so motivated. They were, they were highly intelligent, most of them, and highly motivated to stay alive because they were in their 20s and 30s, many, many, many of them. And so I always told them, if you notice anything, call me at 8 in the morning. I will get you in that same day. Anything that's different. Anything about how you breathe, how you're ca- if you're coughing, how your stomach feels, how your digestion is, your energy, if you feel a little headache, I want you to call me. So I had this very intense connection with these guys. And I evolved many herbal protocols of my own to substitute a lot of the allopathic prophylactic protocols, which so many of these patients were not able to take daily, which is how they had to be taken at that time. There were about 14 different medications that the Western infectious diseases doctors would prescribe to be taken every day. That's a a full-time job. Well, it's not only a full-time job, but it's a full-time assault on the liver and the kidneys Mm. of anybody. Mm -hmm. And these, these guys were very weakened and vulnerable to begin with. So these were the last people who should be dumping all this stuff into them all the time. But over the years, through a lot of very interesting, seemingly coincidental events, I really put together quite a terrific protocol, along with some health concerns pro- uh, products. I mean, I didn't make all of them up myself, but I, I had a personal experience when I went to India for the first time in 1990 to treat Tibetan refugees with Marsha Wolf, who was a long-term student of Yeshi Dandan. I don't know if you know who that is. No, I'm not familiar with him. Okay, well, he's, he's still alive, and he was the physician to the Dalai Lama for about 10 years, and he's a great teacher of Tibetan medicine. So Marsha, who was a friend of mine, she was still alive also, and she's a naturopath, and she was an acupuncturist. Ted Kapchuk introduced us to each other because he said we each reminded him of the other person. So she had been going to India at that time for about 15 years already to study with Yeshi Dandan and then to do work in Tibetan refugee camps. She asked me to go with her in 1990. And I was 
this this relationship that I was in for such a long time was a very challenging and difficult one for numerous reasons. And if she had said, let's go to the North Pole, I would have said, okay, let's go. The fact that she was in t- inviting me to come to India didn't mean anything to me particularly. I had no connection with India that I was aware of. But we went, and I, being the good little ex-nurse that I was, took an anti-malarial called Fansidar, uh, which was the way you protected yourself against malaria in India at that time. I took it with me, and the, the way you took it was you just took one pill a week, but it, you're supposed to take it always the same day, the same time of day. So I used to take it every Wednesday morning. And then every Wednesday afternoon and all day Thursday, I'd be very nauseated. When I got back from India, from that trip, I called up Brion Herbs in California and I spoke to Dr. Hu, H-U, who mm. was one of the heads there at that time. And I said to him, you know, Dr. Hu, I just came back from India and I, I just can't take this anti-malarial. Is there something in Chinese herbs that I could take? And he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. You, you take Ching Hao and, and um, Chai Hu. So Dr. Hu said you take four to six grams of, of Ching Hao and two grams of bupleurum every day, and you'll be fine. And so that's what I did. Then I started looking up Ching Hao, and I saw that it's an anti-protozoan. And here I've been working with all these guys who are dying from pneumocystis carinae pneumonia. Well, pneumocystis is protozoan. And I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder if... They could take Ching Hao and they wouldn't have to take two of the antibiotics that they're taking every day. And of course, when you take so many antibiotics, inevitably you wind up with a fungal infection. So one thing would create the other, create the other. Then you treat the fungal infection and they would treat the fungal infection with flagell, the MDs, which is brutal. So I thought, gosh, if I could spare them the two antibiotics and the flagell, that would be a great big help for them. So I added Ching Hao to all the other things I was doing herbally with them. And you know what? My patients never got pneumocystis carinae pneumonia. Wow. And I kept them out of the hospital. That was the other thing. Once they're in the hospital, they're really vulnerable to infections because they hardly have any immunity. Right. Hospital's the worst place to be in that situation. Of course. And emotionally, once they were in the hospital, to them it was the sign that they were going to leave the hospital out the back door on the way to the funeral parlor. Because in those days, you died from AIDS, and usually in, in two or three years. So there was an enormous emotional component to being in the hospital when you had AIDS. So by keeping them out of the hospital, I could spare them that. And generally speaking, I could keep them out of the hospital until they developed what ultimately they tended to develop, which was a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then they'd be in the hospital and they'd have, you know, x-rays and on and on. And ultimately that wouldn't, would not lead to a good outcome and they would die. But for nine or 10 years, I kept everyone out of the hospital. And my life just revolved around my patients and what they needed and being available. And it was extremely exciting because I was very successful. I spoke at conferences. I did a lot of teaching. I was, I was very, very active in this. 
it was a very exciting thing. I will say also, it was also very emotionally exhausting. Oh, how could it not be? So what did you do to sort of keep your spirit strong, to keep your spirit clear in, in those sorts of situations? Well, don't forget, I graduated in 86. I went to India for the first time in 90. At that time, I did have a booming practice. And actually, Stuart, you know who Stuart Watts is? Mm, no, I don't. No, not familiar with him. Well, okay. Well, he was a very, uh, very senior acupuncturist, and he happened to have a New York license. So Stuart came and stayed in my apartment and treated all my patients while I was in India. And so I developed this pattern of going to India, having someone cover my practice so that I wasn't leaving all these guys in the lurch. And at, again, at that time, it was mostly these young men I was treating. And my life started changing because a very amazing thing happened to me in India in 1990. And it's a whole other story, but I, I became very connected to a spiritual community there. And that provided me with enormous, not necessarily emotional support, but I think spiritual support. Yeah. There's, there's resources there. Yeah. And that has been part of my life now for 28 years. Mm -hmm. And what happened, it's so involved and so quirky, these things that happen. Well, you know, it's, it's often really quirky things that are like these stepping stones from here to there. And I, you know, and I, and I want to hear about this stepping stone from New York to India and such. And I'm aware of that we're at that moment where we actually start needing to wind down this particular conversation. I think we need to come and pick this up another day. And it's a good place to stop because it's a bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah, okay. <laughs> However you want to do it is fine, Michael. <laughs> so I think for today, we'll just put a bookmark in it right here. And we're going to come and pick this up in another episode. All right, that's it for today's conversation. Hey, if you guys like what you're hearing here, if it's helpful to you, please tell your friends about it. Also, I'm kind of curious. I can look at the download statistics for this podcast, and I see, obviously, there's people in North America that listen to this. There's folks in Australia, Russia, Japan, China. Oh, China, imagine that, China. And I'm wondering where it is that you're listening to this podcast from. So if you don't mind, if you're listening to this right now, pull out your phone or maybe go buy a postcard. Take a picture. Let me see where it is that you listen to Geological from. You can email it to me. The address is michael at geological.com. Or you could send me a postcard. Wow, postcard. That is so old school. I'd love to have that. You'll find the address over on the website. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.